Welcome to this episode of the Well-Read Dames podcast. For this author highlight, we're speaking with Mr. James Pete. How are you today, sir? I am doing great. Thank you so much for meeting with me. I know we had, there was ice storms and winds and snow and everything's kind of been going on recently (laughs) weather-wise. Well, fortunately, no earthquakes, so I guess we're okay. Yeah, there was an earthquake on one of my author highlight podcasts with Craig Martell. So, oh, okay, yep, uh, he did have that seven point whatever a little south of him. Yep, yeah, it was while we were talking. It was the weirdest thing. Luckily, he was fine, um, and it looks like hopefully most people were. But you know, Mother Nature. <laughs> oh yeah, unpredictable. Um, and so, and you should know a lot about that because before we just kind of get into this, um, what would you first, if anything, want your readers to know about you um, on this platform? Say something about yourself. Um, anything before we get going? Oh, well, I guess I can give a little background information. Um, for those who have read my bio, you'll notice I'm a little bit different than most people where I don't have that linear trajectory when it comes to careers and you know location. Basically, I've uh, grown up all over the world. I've lived in Panama, Germany, Liberia, Laos, and Thailand uh, before migrating to the U.S. when I was 18, where I attended the uh, University of Wa- not correction, the University of Miami um, after a stint at a community college in Fort Lauderdale. I mean, Fort Lauderdale. And uh, during that time period, I worked part time as a park ranger with the National Park Service, um, and then. When I left school, I was I was one of those dropouts. I hated school, and I left with only six credits to go and worked as a park ranger for a number of years and then worked briefly at the Smithsonian Institute and then got hired as a police officer in Alexandria, Virginia, where I realized that, hey, I could make 5% more if I had my bachelor's degree. So I actually went back and finished my bachelor's degree. And then after several years of police work, I realized that it was not quite the career I wanted. And so I grabbed that book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Which I hear is actually still in print. And I determined that what I really wanted to do in life was teach, but didn't really like kids at the time. So teaching at anything less than the college level was not what one would plan for. So I decided to teach at the university level, which as you're probably aware, requires getting a PhD which for somebody who graduated barely um, with better than a 2.0 was rather daunting. But eventually I wound up getting a Ph.D. from the University of Washington. Um, Along the way, got married to a physician and wound up geographically constrained here in Washington, uh, Washington State, that is. And rather than going somewhere to find jobs, I wound up teaching part time uh, online. And during that time period, I also opened up a um, consulting business, which kind of morphed into a private investigator business. And along the way, I became what's known as a certified fraud examiner. So I do fraud investigations and forensic accounting. Uh, I teach online. And then I uh, started writing. Actually, I also invented the Simple Shower, which is a little device that turns a bottle into a portable handheld shower. But I've always had this idea of this book in my mind. And so one day I just sat down and started writing it. And that's about where I am right now. That is just an amazing story. And different, like you said, I like I like to think of a lot of writers like yourself specifically as of like jack of all trades, 
types because we have so many different backgrounds. And I think that's what makes possibly a good writer. Obviously not for anyone that writes and just has one job, like good for you. But (laughs) you've had so many different life experiences and interactions from job to job, country to country, um, just so many experiences to draw from. Um, and I, I, I wrote down that I, f- I feel like you're more well-traveled than even your characters who, <laughs> who travel to a different planet, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, but they get more t- time on boats and uh, on foot and in planes, I think, than I do. That's not bad. I get kind of sick on boats, so that's all right. <laughs> that's a, believe me, I crossed the Atlantic on the SS United States back in the mid-60s, and I was seasick from the Straits of Gibraltar to New York Harbor. And that's on a big... Oh, no. Yeah, so sailing is out of the question for me. Right. No cruise ship vacations for you. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> well, there we go. And now you're in Washington State, which is a place that personally I've never been but I am fascinated with the Pacific Northwest because it seems to be almost the complete opposite. I guess it would be the complete opposite of a desert, uh, but I'm from the Midwest. So everything is flat and everything is cornfields and all the trees have pretty much been cut down. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> interestingly enough, a lot of people consider the Pacific Northwest, or as we like to call it, the Pacific Northwest, um, yeah. to be nothing but rain and forest. But Washington State is actually divided in half by the Cascade Mountains. And on the other side, it really is desert with sagebrush and lots of dry stuff, which wow. a, lot, a lot of people are just amazed because everybody's got this geographic mindset, or as we professional geographers like to say, you know, a mental map, if you will, of an area. And Washington is considered the evergreen state. It's raining all the time but that's only one third of the state. I mean, we have everything from 140 inches of rain a year on the uh, Olympic Peninsula to less than 14 inches a year, just on the other side of the mountains, the Olympic mountains on the Olympic Peninsula and on the other side of the Cascade Mountains. Oh, I forgot to mention, I have a master's and a PhD in geography. (laughs) That's actually what brought me to Washington was the PhD program, which is why my characters, I have degrees from the University of Washington. See, that makes that makes sense. So your journey kind of around the world started, it sounds like when you were a child, it sounds like it, it wasn't even like a conscious decision as an adult, um, but that you moved around a lot in your youth. Yeah. Uh, basically, my dad worked for the State Department um, and he dragged us everywhere. I wow. have managed to, let's see, live through two civil wars, uh, numerous floods, a cyclone, and uh, one minor earthquake, but that was as an adult. See, I love I love the differences. Your your dad worked for the State Department, so you went everywhere. My dad was in the Air Force, and they moved us to Illinois. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite a change. <laughs> it looks pretty much the same as Indiana. So, <laughs> um, but so, um, kind of just kind of more to get into your your book. I I've not finished it, so I'm not gonna. I don't like to ever talk about really plot lines and stuff because I don't trust myself to not give spoilers in the first place. But um, I really like love where I'm at in the story. And I find it so fascinating because it's like a wonderful adventure sci-fi book. Um, And, and just this whole idea of creating just kind of like a, a window to a parallel version of earth and then getting to go there and, 
and just kind of then setting up humanity and civilization. Um, kind of where did that idea come from? Have you always kind of had this in the back of your mind or, or did it just kind of develop over one at one time? It pretty much developed over time. Um, when I was younger in college, uh, well, in high school, I got into Robert Heinlein's uh, writing, you know, the usual youth, uh, science, young adult, as they would call it now, uh, sci-fi, such as Tunnel in the Sky, Starship Troopers, which was made into a movie that some people view as really bad. Some people love it, but it has very little bearing on how Heinlein actually wrote the novel. Um, and then I got into uh, H. Bean Piper. Uh, he wrote some fantastic novels such as uh, Little Fuzzy and Fuzzy Sapiens. But one of his most interesting uh, series, if you will, was what is called the Paratime series, which is basically what I write, people going from one Earth into parallel Earths. And this was also, I'm trying to think there was another author who did something. Oh, yes, S.M. Sterling writ Conquistador, which is sort of like it. And the funny thing is, is when Conquistador came out, I already had in mind my original story, which is not what you're reading, but it's actually the backstory, which I'm about 5,000 words into right now, three to 5,000. Um, and it was, it was very similar to that. And then another author, I can't recall his name, also wrote a book on a opening to a parallel world called Outland or Outlander. I think it's Outlander. And once again, it was just as I had finished writing my first one, that one came out and I'm like, geez, is everybody writing about this now? But it uh, was something It took me about 10 years of just conceptualizing while I was taking the dogs for a walk. And finally, I just sat down and wrote it. And actually, what I did is I wrote, I, I want to say the second in the series, because the first one is the backstory called Openings, which I'm working on right now. The one you're reading is called Surveyor, which was originally titled uh, The Future Adventures of Lewis and Clark. And once you read it, you understand why I wrote it that way. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I, I kind of picked up on, on what felt like com some parallels. <laughs> now, what I uh, find interesting is I've never read a story like this. In fact, the only idea I can even think of is there is a TV show that was on called Fringe. I don't know if you ever watched Fringe. Um, and But it was the idea that a scientist created a parallel to an alternate timeline on Earth. But it was it was basically Earth as we know it, only a few key different things happened. Um, like they still used Zephyrs as transportation mm -hmm. instead of us who really just kind of departed from that after, you know, the big incident. So, you know, I mean, there's just like little differences and they basically kind of interact with each other. The governments know only know about the connection and kind of, hesitantly work together to try and help each universe. Oh, okay. Um, Never and heard so, of that. Oh, it was good. It was, it was pretty good. Um, it was like five or six seasons and I loved it. And so that, that was the only story that I've ever read. That was kind of an idea of just opening a portal to not just like Mars, you know, but to just like a parallel earth where just certain things are different. And then in, in your story, it's that humanity didn't develop. Um, and I love at the very beginning, the, the visual of like a saber toothed tiger, um, because they hadn't been like hunted to extinction, you know, <laughs> by, um, by man. And so, um, 
I was like, well, that's amazing. That's the coolest thing, you know, just to think of these extinct creatures that, you know, we hunted like mammoths until extinction, but they're just rolling around Wyoming, you know? <laughs> well, the funny thing about that is that that's only one hypothesis uh, on why the megafauna went extinct throughout North America. And I actually um, cover a different hypothesis, which, you know, we don't really know the whole reason why these animals went extinct. And that's why we have these hypotheses that have developed. And I cover a different one called the impact hypothesis, which I don't want to give it away. <laughs> so people should read the book. Yeah. Read the book, you guys. I need to finish it. So keep reading it. But it's really compelling. It's really interesting. I love the characters. I love the dialogue. Um, I love how not military, but kind of militant feeling it is uh, with our characters. They're very, everything is, seems to be life or death, even if it's, you know, just like picking up your badge the correct way, you know, just, <laughs> <laughs> um, everything has so much like gravity to your actions. And so I really, I really like it. And this is definitely a different genre, genre than I regularly read. Um, and I was really excited to, to get into it. So um, everyone should read them. I'm excited for the second one and for the one you're working on now. So, but it sounds kind of like, are you an avid science reader? Like not just science fiction, um, but do you, I mean, I imagine so just based on your degrees and the fact that you live in Washington state. Um, do you kind of read science articles? <laughs> not much of a science reader. I, uh, I read a lot. Um, I read a wide variety of stuff. I, I read a lot of history. Um, you know, I, re I read marketing books, of course, because of my businesses. I read a lot of fraud stuff uh, and geography. Um, but when it comes to hardcore science, I'd say not a whole lot. I mean, I'm interested in things like such as, okay, we have these signals from space that are happening. What is causing these signals? Okay, the you know uh, the magnetic pole is actually moving at a much more rapid pace. Why is that? So I guess you could say a little bit, but not to the degree that many others probably do in my field. Right. To be clear, those are exactly the articles I was talking <laughs> about because I've read them well recently. <laughs> I was um, just reading earlier today about a frog, which this is funny, but they say right now we're at the beginning of uh, the sixth mass, mass extinction on Earth. Right, the anthropogenic um, one. <laughs> Right. And it's mostly infecting the amphibious life. Right. Um, and there's this type of frog in Bolivia that they had what they believed was the last one, um, but they hope not. So they created last year on Valentine's Day a Match.com profile for this frog, which is just kind of a very creative and hilarious idea as a way to raise money um, with the with the idea that they could use the money to look for other frogs. So luckily it worked out and they found five other frogs of this, what they thought was basically extinct frog. And now they're going to try to breed them in captivity to like bring the population to the point where they can be reintroduced into the wild. Um, and so I was just reading about that today and it, it made me kind of think of your work because it was just kind of the idea of, like right now, we don't know what's causing the sixth mass extinction. We just, we know that it's happening. You know, we know. <laughs> well, a lot of it has we to do with uh, humankind's impact on the earth. I mean, the fact is we are clear cutting a lot of, um, a lot of the land for agriculture. Most of the agriculture is uh, animal husbandry, if you will, you know, people eating meat. Um, and I cover that a little bit in the book too. So you see that happening. And of course, anytime you put up a dam, you have problems. Uh, and when you pollute, you have problems. 
Um, and of course, hunting creates problems. And I am a hunter, so I, although I'm a bad hunter, I think the proper term is vegetarian. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I just, I, I, for some reason, great shot, horrible hunter. Go figure. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But yeah, we are, you know, this mass extinction is happening uh, and it's happening rather rapidly. And it's because it's, it's not just what humankind is doing as it relates to um, our direct impact, but also the indirect impact, such as introducing uh, plants into different ecosystems. Uh, for example, the chestnut blight that wiped out the North American chestnut or the American chestnut was an introduced virus from Europe. Uh, you have um, in California, there used to be bunch grass until the um, Spanish settlers who sailed around the Cape of uh, Good Hope, Cape, no, the Cape Horn. I'm sorry, bad, bad uh, geographer, no biscuit. Sailed around <laughs> Cape Horn and stopped off in Argentina to feed the horses. They picked up the seeds of the pampas grasses, came up. The horses and cattle loved the bunch grass in California, ate it all up, and there's no bunch grass in California. So those kinds of impacts are also leading towards a mass extinction. Yeah. yeah. So we need to open up these portals fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That was kind of an interesting idea. I was like, well, this is a solution. Um, so kind of to, to go from that, because I know everyone right now is focused on a mission to Mars, you know, and I always like in, in my story that is going to hopefully be coming out very soon this quarter. I'm, that's my goal. But it's kind of one of the very like small, deep subplots is the idea of being on multiple Earth planets, you know, of the thing that our scientists are looking at now of finding, you know, what could be like the next Earth. And can we make it habitable? You know, does it have water? Like, can we terraform the atmosphere? Um, which I think is interesting. I read a joke once that was like, everyone wants to terraform Mars, but we can't fix the Sahara. You know? <laughs> there was that issue. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that is a very good point. I would ask that question before I got on um, a spaceship myself. But um, uh, where, you know, are you excited for the idea of missions to Mars? Because I think that that's kind of one of the kind of outlanding ideas is it's so close to earth it's the it's the closest planet we can really reach and <laughs> uh realistically and it's you know it's just close enough that maybe we could set up a, a like a, like literally a mars colony for people um kind of what do you think about that idea well i have to say the one thing i'm most disappointed in uh our society is the fact that we don't already have settlements on Mars and the moon, and we're not trying to reach the nearest star system. I mean, it's only four and a half light, you know, four and a half light years away. I mean, what is that, 91,000 miles per second or something like that? But yeah, I mean, the fact that we don't already have them speaks volumes uh, about us, I think. I mean, John F. Kennedy got us going into the space race got a man on the moon and then we just sort of gave up and it's like, why, you know, so <laughs> why didn't you go back? <laughs> you know, I, I love the fact, especially uh, being a somewhat anti-authoritarian person. Um, some people would say libertarian. I say anti-authoritarian, but I love the fact that we have these private companies, actually SpaceX and such actually doing this Virgin uh, Galactic getting out there, and doing what the government has dropped the ball on. So that yeah, was a, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I was a child of the sixties and you know, 
literally, I still remember when we landed on the moon in 1969, even though we were living in Africa and we had a very small black and white TV, it was just, it was amazing to see. And when the space shuttle went up for the first time, I mean, I remember when we had the original space shuttle, the mock-up, if you will, uh, which never went into space, but they named it the USS Enterprise after Star Trek, which was, of course, named after the USS Enterprise of World War II fame. So it just it's it's amazing to see, and I love it. I have, like, chills just thinking about, like, all the advances that first happen in science fiction and then happen yep. in real life. Um <laughs> it's kind of like a chicken and the egg situation. Like, did we create that because that's a great idea or (laughs) here's a, here's here. This is a true and hilarious story. When I was a youngster, I was reading a Robert Heinlein novel and I forget exactly which one it was. um, But I remember these two young adults, two young men were on a slide walk, which we had slide walks at that point, you know, and then, hey, is that your phone? Why, yes, it is. And he reaches into his bag and he grabbed his phone. And I'm like, yeah, right. Like, that's ever going to happen. <laughs> Boy, did I eat those words. <laughs> Who doesn't have a phone now? I love watching. Um, there's a Seinfeld episode, which, I mean, Seinfeld is, uh, I never watched it until an adult, which is so weird. Um, but I think in college is when I started watching Seinfeld. Um, and I, I like, I love it. And there's the episode about losing, I think it's the movie where they can't like, no one can like figure out where they're at with the movie and everyone's like yelling at each other's like names in the movie theater. <laughs> and the entire episode can just be avoided by a cell phone. Yep. You know, <laughs> the problem is that they can't communicate with each other once they leave their homes. And so, and I remember that. I, I obviously remember life without cell phones. It was like most, most of my life, you know, until I was an adult. And so I like, it's so relatable, but I, the episode's still funny and it's still relevant. And I'm just like, it's just so easy today to text and be like, I'm in line. Where are you? Getting popcorn. Meet you inside. And then that's the end of the episode. It's like entire problem solved, yep. you know? <laughs> and there's the other one where they lose their car in a parking garage and they're like, the entire episodes in a parking garage which that is like a nightmare for real because i just i hate parking garages but um it's like i'm like now you can just drop like a google pen you know well, for those more technologically advanced your- uh, some of us are still a little bit of a luddite so <laughs> i don't quite have that technology yeah I, definitely, yeah I i know that you can do the pen i'm awful at it i definitely went two i think two years ago my sister went to a concert and then we spent over an hour just walking around trying to find our car afterward oh that's where the fob <laughs> comes in handy click click beep beep oh yeah yeah we it was it was an entire it was an entire thing but yeah we like everything's color-coded and numbered and we remembered that we had the number five but then we found out there was a number five for every color <laughs> section um and so we walked through every color section and when we got through, we realized we still hadn't found our car. And then we asked a person, because luckily they're not allowed to leave until all the cars are gone, <laughs> the employees. And I asked a person and I was like, and I described it. And she was like, oh, you're at gate five. And I was like, what is that? And she was like, it's it's nowhere near where you've been. And I had to walk like through a field, like over a bridge that I did not go over the first time at all. And, <laughs> and eventually... We found the car, like basically alone in a field at that point. And I was just like, oh my God. Mm. 
I was like, we're about to have to call someone to pick us up and find my car in the morning. So, um, but yeah, I need to figure out how to actually do the the parking thing. But I know that it's possible, you know? <laughs> um, so kind of sorry to, di- to kind of digress there. But, no, no, um, but I find it's it- It's a combination of science and geography. <laughs> I love it. It is. It really is. I had a real problem. I could send you a map and you would just laugh at like everywhere that I went <laughs> to where my car was. And um, all I knew was number five, you know, and I thought that's all I needed. Um, <laughs> and so when you started kind of writing yourself, um, did you, you've self-published your books, correct? Or did you go I through self-published. Um, I originally tried to find an agent uh, slash publisher by attending a conference, the uh, Willamette Writers Conference. And for anybody who wants to be a writer, all I can say is go to these conferences. Um, you will learn so much. Uh, my wife is actually writing a book right now on her experiences having been a patient in a hospital. Um, and she thought she was doing great. And I was like, no, you need to go to this conference. And she's like, well, I really don't want to go. That costs money. I'm like, you're going here. Here's a pre- Christmas present, uh, early Christmas present slash birthday present. Go. And she went and she learned so much and she came back and she went, wow, do I have a lot of work to do? And I was like, see, I was trying to tell you that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so right. yes, definitely <laughs> go to conferences, talk to people and make that determination. Um, what led me towards self-publishing is the fact that I, I've seen that some books that publishers pick up do great. And then nothing more. I've got friends who are publishers. I've got friends who are writers. And it's so difficult breaking into the getting published with a traditional publisher. And with the advances in technology and print on demand and ebooks, it just, it makes no sense for somebody like me to go to a publisher when I can just do the same thing on my own. Uh, so the way I do it is I write my story. I throw it through a, throw it past a few alpha readers, say, what do you think? Tell me about content. Um, is there anything in here that's missing? You know, what part of the book is putting you to sleep so I can change that? You know, I have them put little Z's next to that part in the book. And once they give me the feedback, I revamp the book. I get it off to my uh, editor, who is a copy, mainly a copy editor, although she does do some developmental work. Um, and she turns it around. She sends me the uh, PDFs with all the markups. I revamp it, and um, starting with book number three, I'm actually going to be sending it out to a um, couple of, I, I want to call them the beta readers, who are actually the whole, their whole thing is pick up on any grammatical mistakes you see, you know, such as do I have two periods where I shouldn't have any. Um, I have one uh, person who is a great fan. He's constantly emailing me. Matter of fact, he sent me an email the other day on a parachute parachute extraction fail, which I haven't had a chance to look at yet. Uh, That's how busy I am. But you get it to those people, and then comes the fun part, putting everything into publishing format, which there are four different ways that I actually publish it, two electronic and two for print-on-demand. Uh. The ebooks are uh, either an EPUB format, which is good for uh, Nook or Kobo or any other type of just e-reader you might have on your computer. And the other one is actually in the Kindle format, or as it's called Mobi, M-O-B-I. 
And so when I publish the two, they're each a little different, including the actual um, cover art. Um, so my first cover artist uh, for Surveyor, um, great job, very expensive. Uh, the second cover for Trekker was done by an illustrator out of South Africa, which was basically mm, a quarter of the cost of the first one. And, you know, when you're self-publishing, you know, the things you want to have are an attractive cover, but you also want to save money. And so how do you do that? And that's where you have to hunt around and look. Uh, you could go to Fiverr. A lot of people have actually gone into the whole thing where they're just doing Photoshop, where they'll have, you know, some stock art uh, taken off of Getty Images or something like that, and usually a person on the cover. And I've just never liked that. So I stick more with traditional illustration for mine. And the paperbacks, of course, require that you have uh, wraparound covers with backs. Um, and you have to format them different ways for the different uh, print-on-demand formats. I go through, uh, I guess it's now just Kindle. It was CreateSpace and uh, Ingram Spark. Um, and the CreateSpace is basically for anybody buying on Amazon, they could go directly there. And if they want the paperback, they just order it, bam, Amazon prints it up, sends it to them. Uh, Ingram Spark is more for my wide publication so that um, I have a couple of bookstores locally that carry my books because people like them. They're like, wow, hey, yeah, I'll buy it. And I say, buy local, always buy local. And so the local store here, the sequel in Enumclaw, Washington, carries uh, my books and then the uh, a good book and a good book in uh, Sumner Washington carries my books uh, the owner there is good friends with us and helped out a lot after my wife ac wife's accident but they will not order bookstore owners will not order through uh, Amazon they view Amazon as the evil uh, dark overlord so but they will order through uh, Ingram spark and when you sell on Ingram Spark, you have to do what's called a discount. Uh, so my books run, what, $14.99 and $15.99, respectfully. So they actually, I have about a 50 or 55% markdown on that for the bookstore owners. So that way, when they order it, they're paying about half of what they're going to sell it for, which is a usual markup in uh, most businesses. So it's a term called Keystone. So... Keystone is basically a double markup, if you will, or a hundred percent markup. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And these, you're bringing up great points because one of the reasons that um, I started talking to like indie authors on this podcast is one, I found the community extraordinarily helpful and supportive. Which, when I originally kind of started out, there was there was no way I thought I was going to reach out to any other authors, you know. <laughs> um, I remember trying to like find ways to contact other authors, you know? And so once I did, I, um, I created an Instagram account in the hopes of finding like a readership, you know, and, and, and I, I hope I did, but what I know for sure is that I found this community of, of indie authors and it's so helpful because I think you just covered like three of the topics that in the past like year I've stumbled upon, you know, which is, uh, differences in book formatting. And just, it's just a thing I, I, I was like, the hard part's writing the book. And it is. That's the hard part. But then once you have it completed, there's a whole other like series of hard parts. You know, like I just 
bought a cover in the last month. I was so excited. Um, but I've been searching forever for covers, you know, and like you said, a cover that kind of conveys somewhat what your book's about. And I, one of my beta readers told me that it was, it was like a sci-fi romance. And I was like, that's great. How do I portray that on a cover? You know, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like there's some time travel. There's a lot going on. I, it's like, I need like, just like a bunch of emojis like on my cover to be like, this is what my book is about, you know? <laughs> But somehow I don't think that would sell. Yeah, the hard part so, is getting a good cover oh. um, and one that you're happy with and one that also sells. Uh, because even exactly, and I mean I hope I've accomplished that. Yeah, despite the fact that we all say don't judge <laughs> don't a book yet. by its cover, we all do, and our readers do. So, in my books, what I hope to convey is the sense of action, adventure, being outside, um, and it's I've got a few things going on in the first cover that. You probably don't even notice unless you look close, but there's a saber-toothed skull in the ground. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. the, you know, there's actually a parallel earth in the sky. You just can't see it because of the way it's written. But uh, and the second one, of course, you can see the Smilodon and a Mastodon both. You know, for those who don't know, a Smilodon is the actual name for a saber-toothed tiger or a saber-toothed cat. And a mastodon uh, is the relative of the mammoth, uh, the woolly mammoth. They're just slightly different. And don't ask me for the differences. I don't recall. Right. right. <laughs> I, uh, at one point, knew them and also don't know anymore either. <laughs> I just know that they are different. They're big and they're furry and they run um, over people. <laughs> they're really big. Yeah, exactly. They're gigantic. Um so imagine a, a hairy giant elephant that's mad. You know. Yeah, hopefully it. Uh, yeah, hopefully with science the way it is and genetic manipulation, we might one day see woolly mammoths back again. I've I've read some of those things about them trying to like clone a woolly mammoth and how how close the science is to doing that. And um, as a big fan of Jurassic Park as a kid, like a part of me is like, uh, don't do it. Jeff Goldblum's character predicted the fall. And the other part is like, do it. I want to see a dinosaur. Yeah, I'm not you sure know? I'd want to see the dinosaurs back. You know, it's, they'd probably just be like oversized chickens. Who knows? But, you know. Right. Maybe like a yeah. I think I'll go for a woolly <laughs> mammoth or a mastodon. I'm not sure I want to bring back a saber-toothed cat, but. I mean, they're some of the just megafauna from the, you know, late Pleistocene are just phenomenal. I mean, the giant sloth and, of course, you know, my favorite, the giant beaver. And I have to admit that the, the beaver is our totem, if you will. Um, we've got stuffed beavers everywhere in our house and every vehicle. So that would be awesome. And they used to have apparently six foot tall penguins. Oh, I did not know that. There. Yeah, they found giant penguin Ooh. remains. So there was like a, yeah, there was like a previous breed of penguins that was six feet tall. And that is just like a horrifying and also amazing idea. Um, and, you know, penguins are, they're kind of endangered. So um, I think it's I'll cool. I'll have to check that. That's fodder <laughs> for another novel. <laughs> but yeah, so, but getting back, to, getting back to the whole uh, self-publishing thing. Um, Yes. Writing software. Uh, I typically use, well, no, not typically. I mostly use Scrivener, which is a software program dedicated to writing um, manuscripts. It could be a novel, uh, fiction. It could be 
a textbook. Um, there are many different templates that they have. It could be a screenplay. So for anybody who's planning on doing any writing, that's a software program I highly recommend. Uh, to give you an example, um, when I first started writing Surveyor, I was doing it in Microsoft Word, one long continuous document. After 350 pages of writing, it became extremely frustrating because as you're writing, you're like, okay, what did I say back then? And then you have to go hunt for what you said. And it was, a, it was basically a tedious process. And once again, getting back to the conferences, that's where the conferences came in because they, you know, they brought up use Scrivener. I was like, wow, that looks pretty cool. And I did. And it's an amazing program. Uh, for those who have never heard of it, what it does is it allows you to not only break your book up into chapters, um, but break it down each chapter into scenes and you write each scene separately. So on, you know, your left side of your uh, screen, you'll actually see a big file that says manuscript and under that will have another one that could be, you know, part one. And within that, you'll see a chapter one. And then within chapter one, you'll see, you know, individual files for uh, each scene. So now when I need to, you know, either check on something in a scene, it's a matter of, okay, I know it's in that scene, click on it, bam, it opens up real quick and I can do it, uh, which also allows me to go back and rewrite and not mess up and leave things in that I shouldn't leave in. Um, there's other software out there called Vellum. Uh, I don't know anything about that, but, you know, just let readers aware of it. And Scrivener is actually, I use it on Windows, but I've also got it for a Mac. It's ideally suited for Macs. Um, so unless you actually need a Windows program, it, you know, and you want to be a dedicated writer, it might just be best to go with a Mac. Yeah. I'm, I'm using a Mac right now, you guys. I'm a big fan. Oh, so, yeah. And, <laughs> and Microsoft Word, boo, yes. Scrivener, yay. Yay. Oh, actually, I'll actually have to check that out because I use an app I called IE Writer on my phone, and it's not the best. It's great for writing on your phone, which is I wrote most of my first book I've, on my I've phone. Known people who do that, <laughs> which is not the way that you know when you think about writing or when I imagined myself doing it, I, I did. But I I started writing um, just like on mm -hmm. my lunch breaks. You know what I mean? Or or downtime when you're like at the B and V. Like whenever I had time is when I would write. Um, and, or if I had an idea, my, I have my phone, you know, and I could just grab it and just jot my idea down. I have, I think hundreds of notes just randomly of ideas and how to fix things. And, um, and it's, it's great, you know, and then once I finished it, then I ported it to word. Um, and so I'll have to check out Scrivener. One of the functions of Scrivener is that you actually have it where it is iPhone compatible. So if you have an iPhone and you've got a Mac, uh, I don't know the exact mechanics behind it because I don't have an iPhone, but you can do your work in Scrivener on your iPhone uh, and then just put it right into your Scrivener on your computer. Wow. See, that's great. And I currently pay for like Office 360 to do that and, um, and Google Docs <laughs> and things like that. Because I'm always so afraid of losing changes and losing my work. Well, and that's the good thing about Scrivener, too, is the fact that uh, when you're writing, it's constantly saving it. It's not like Microsoft Word, where if you forget to save and your computer crashes, um, you might have the auto-recovered one, but you might not have all the information in it. You know, Scrivener actually saves as you go, which I love. 
especially living in a wind-prone area like we do. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And I, I think we've all been there where we've lost like a document on Word and never been able to recover and it's the worst feeling. Um, <laughs> so then you have to start over. So that would be just a terminal. Um, and so we've kind of talked about the your new work that you're working on, which is kind of, would you call it like a prequel to your other books or just really the first in the series? I'm actually working on three novels currently, believe it or not. <laughs> um, That's amazing. Well, the biggest one, which is at about thirty-eight to 40,000 words right now, which is almost novel length, is mm-hmm. uh, the pre- uh, sequel to the sequel. So that one's called Explorer. And if you want to learn more about what's happening, my website is just www.jamespeet.com. And that's P-E-E-T, like the coffee or the boot dryer or what Palm Olive used to be called. So that is actually following uh, our main protagonist as she goes into a parallel world that is, well, I don't want to give too much away. You have to read the books. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's pretty interesting. Um, but then I'm also writing the uh, backstory, uh, which was the original first book, which is where our hero opens up the parallel worlds and tosses the chicken in and watches the saber-toothed cat chomp down on it. Uh so that one is going along. Plus, I'm writing a uh, young adult novel, which tangentially stars uh, the female protagonist uh, from my main series, but as a much younger girl, and uh, has the main protagonist as somebody who's actually just a secondary character in the second novel. So that one is going to be geared more towards the young adult uh action slash sci-fi crowd but i'm sure that adults will love it too oh absolutely i feel like adults love young adult even more possibly than young adults do um <laughs> oh i read a lot of them i mean harry turtle tubs uh cross time series i think it's called pretty fun mm-hmm. i've heard of that i haven't read that yet but i i love young adult work um i find it really hard to write um so I, I think that's great that, that you're working on that. I think at some point I might try that, um, but I don't, not anytime soon. <laughs> um, so do you think that these will be coming out in 2019 or do you have kind of a, a goal for when they will be published? Ah, good question. Um, I would love them to come out in 2019. The problem, problem that exists right now is my fraud business is extremely busy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, lots of people commit fraud. Uh, and I do teach part-time, but uh, fortunate or unfortunate, depending on your perspective, uh, the teaching load is pretty light right now. I'm only teaching one class, uh, and I'm also taking two months off in uh, June and July, actually from June 17th through August 20th, to go to Spain and walk the uh, Camino de Santiago. So as to publishing, I'd like to be able to get them out this year. We'll see. Well, that is amazing. I hope that you do. Um, and please let me know whenever you do release work, um, because I will promote it with my relatively small fan base. But I, <laughs> I absolutely will promote your work um, as much as I can. Um, what's your kind of favorite place that you've traveled or lived? Um, Spain sounds great, but I've never been. Uh- <laughs> That's the title of the song. I've never been to Spain, but I kind of like, no, I won't say I'm horrible. <laughs> My family tells me to shut up all the time. Uh, favorite place. When I was young, uh, living in Laos was just amazing. Um, 
it's kind of hard to describe just how great it was to live in an area, despite the fact that there was a war going on at the same time. Um, but we had a great connections. Uh, I attended a small school called the American School of Yanqiang. And what's truly amazing is not only did I graduate with about six people I uh, was in the, well, when I graduated high school in Thailand, I graduated with about six people from my sixth grade class in Laos. And uh, I'm still in touch with many people from that. Uh, we actually have little mini reunions where we all go and eat sticky rice and drink Lao beer and Lao whiskey. Um, I don't recommend the whiskey though. <laughs> <laughs> but Laos was just fantastic. Um, yeah, I've traveled throughout the United States. Uh, many, uh, you know, I've been up to British Columbia, Canada numerous times. Um, been to Calgary at least once, at most once. Once. Uh, I've only been to Mexico once. Uh, I've never really traveled throughout the Caribbean or South America other than living in Panama as a child. And so my actual desire is still to get down to South America because I'd love to see many portions of it. Um, ideally fishing, uh, salmon fishing in, uh, Chile would be fun. And, uh, Australia and New Zealand are on my list. So this summer it's Spain, hopefully next summer, Australia and New Zealand. We'll see. That would be great. I have been to Australia. Woo. That's like one of the places I've been and it's amazing. So I hope that you go and that you love it. Um, I've only been in the Auckland airport, so that's all I can attest to for New Zealand, but it was a very nice airport and the people were very friendly. Um, <laughs> and New Zealand is beautiful by all accounts and every movie that Peter Jackson makes. So, um, I hope that you get to go there. Um, I, I'm just hoping I don't run into any orcs while I'm there. Yeah. Avoid the orcs at all costs. I think probably the whole Ayasauron area, I would just avoid that. Uh, <laughs> But I yeah, well, I'll leave the ring at home. And I I know um, I studied abroad in, in college and went to Australia for three months, and there was an option to extend your trip, and um, then do two weeks in New Zealand, and then there was another option to, to do an additional week, and I think Fiji. Um, and I unfortunately didn't do any of the extension. I went straight home after Australia. I mean, it was it was a lot more money, and I think my main thing was. Um, I pretty much was, I mean, I was with a big group of people, uh, but when we broke out and traveled in Sydney and stuff, um, when we'd go other places besides where we lived, I always traveled by myself. Um, and the idea of like setting up my own lodging and my own travel in like two other countries just seemed really daunting. So I just kind of went home <laughs> after, after Australia, but, um, I, I really want to go back to all of it. Um, but I believe from people I know that you can go on the like still Lord of the Rings tours if you're interested in that and um, like go into like the hobbits homes and I've seen all that stuff. So mm. um, I think that would be really great. Um, but yeah, I, I have not been anywhere in really um, well prime, like primary Europe. Like I just went to Ireland and the UK, but I've not been to like the continent of like Europe, like Spain, France, Germany, any of that, or um or anywhere in Asia. And so I would like to, to kind of do, I have a friend that moved to Bhutan recently, loves it. Um, and so, but I find it interesting because I feel like as Americans, I feel like I don't know many Americans that really go do a lot of travel in like Laos or Thailand or, 
or those places in Asia. But then I speak to people that are, you know, Canadian or European, and it's much more prevalent that they're like, yeah, everyone's been to Thailand. And I'm (laughs) like, I don't know anyone in real life that's been to Thailand. And so I think that's great that you've had that experience because it's really far away from where I live, but I would really like to go at some point. (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, it seems to be an American thing not to travel. Um, As an American, I hate to say it, but we're rather parochial. Um, We just view our country as, oh, this is great. And it is a great country, but it's not the only country. And that's what I love is being able to travel and explore and see different people and different cultures. That's why I have a PhD in geography. And it's just, it's fun. You get out of your comfort zone, you leave. Uh, For example, we have a uh, two nephews and a niece. Well, actually one nephew and a niece who live in England uh, and their sibling lives in New Jersey. But our youngest nephew was getting married, and so we decided, okay, well, we're going to go to his wedding, which is in uh, England near London. And while I'd been to England, I had just never been to places like Stonehenge or seen the White Cliffs of Dover, and I decided while I was there, I was going to do that. And I think I got three speeding tickets out of it, but what the heck. (laughs) But, you know, as we're getting ready for that, my wife was like, well, let's take the kids. And I'm like, they're adults. They're going to cost us money. And she's like, so? I'm like, okay. So we booked the flight. And then I started looking at uh, flying to Dublin because I'm mostly Irish. And my youngest, uh, Katie, who is a writer in her own right, uh, I will plug her fanfic. It's called Dragon Pyre, P-Y-R-E, for anybody who's into the whole, um, I want to say anime Naruto or Supernatural. She apparently has a much bigger following than I do. And she had always wanted to have her first adult beverage in Ireland. And my attitude was always, good luck with that. Well, <laughs> when we made the plan to go to England, and I said, well, how much is it to go to Ireland? I found out that flying on Ryanair, I could get the entire family from England to Ireland and back for $200. That was a no-brainer. And so my wife booked us into a place down in the Temple Bar District in Dublin using Airbnb. And so we flew to Ireland. Uh, we had my daughter got her first alcoholic beverage of her life in a Irish pub. It was a, a cider, as I recall, which she enjoyed, but wouldn't drink much. And then her second um, drink was a sip of Guinness at the Guinness Distillery, which she hated. So her older sister drank it. And then her third <laughs> tasting, which is the funniest, was at the Jameson Distillery at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And I have this just beautiful picture of her trying it and just practically choking. I mean, she burst out with, "Yeah, this tastes like nail polish. <laughs> yeah, which caused everybody in the tasting room to just burst out laughing. And uh, matter of fact, the tour guide from that is actually one of the people following me on my uh, Facebook page. Um, hey. <laughs> yeah, Niall. <laughs> so he actually likes my book. So, yeah, we're I'm, I'm trying to make it an international effort here. So, yeah, and from there we went to uh, Paris. And, uh, of course, I fulfilled a couple of my bucket list items by having a glass of uh, wine in the evening on the banks of the Seine River and then a cup of coffee in the morning on the banks of the Seine River, you know, along with doing the usual touristy things, the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, Notre Dame. Um, but then my wife and I had an opportunity to drive down through uh, Paris to uh 
well, drive down through France, through the Bordeaux region, and stopped at several places. Uh, had some very good wine, highly recommended. And then um, did a portion of the Camino de Santiago for my wife, um, basically crossing the uh, Pyrenees Mountains, which is amazing considering three years ago my wife was in a coma with 19 fractures and uh, was able to walk across the Pyrenees, albeit very slow and with me carrying everything. But wow. then uh, after we got done with that, we actually drove to the grotto of Peshmerl uh, to see the uh, prehistoric cave paintings. Once again, it was like going to Stonehenge. It's amazing. It, it just, it alters your mind. And I guess you could say I, we kind of summed it up by driving to Marseille so I could listen to Jimmy Buffett sing Coast of Marseille while on the coast of Marseille. And I, then I took a side trip to one of the scenes in my uh, first novel, and we wound up having a glass of wine there and talking to the owners of the uh, little resort on the lake, and they were just amazed that, A, I knew of this lake, B, I knew it was the only natural lake in the area, and it's like, well, thank you, Google Earth. You know, <laughs> you know being a geographer helps in this. And so, but the whole thing I'm trying to get on this is that the experiences are things that you're not going to experience in America. You're going to experience different cultures, people who think differently. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, not everybody hates Americans. You know, believe it or not, we're still kind of like, despite the fact that we have a tendency to attack every other country in the world for some reason. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone's always been really nice to me whenever we travel. Um or whenever I've traveled more specifically. And I, I went with my mom and sister and my mom started almost every conversation with, we're not from here. And I was like, everyone knows that. Thanks mom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they can tell, you know, <laughs> but everyone, and in spite of, you know, our, uh, whatever struggles you have with currency or just even terminology or, or anything, wherever you are, um, everyone's always been really, really nice. I think the only rude person that we met when we were in Ireland and Scotland was our last Uber driver. And then he apologized for being rude. And I was like, all right, well, we're all cool. Like no big deal at all. You know? <laughs> and so. I would say other than the gypsies, I mean, everybody else was just wonderful. I mean, you, you hear about the, you know, rudeness of waiters in Spain and that was, or in France. And we never experienced that. I can say watching those waiters and waitresses work, they were busting their butts. I would. I just got my ancestry DNA thing back, and I'm 14% French. So ah, I haven't even tested mine yet. I should. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Um, there. Yeah. It, it was interesting. Definitely things that uh, that you know. You know. I thought I was mostly German, and found out 13%, and I knew I was some French, but didn't think it was a big portion. So. Um, you know, it's it just it's interesting, and it's it's mostly not because just necessarily that your family came from France, you know, or, or whatever, but the fact that humans have been kind of traveling, you know, migratorily and nomadically for so many hundred thousands of years, um, that it doesn't matter that my great great grandparents came over from Dublin. I only got three percent Irish, you know. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting when I find out. <laughs> exactly, and I somehow got sixty five percent. Um, English. And I was like, well, I don't know of anyone that, that was in England. I have no idea. And so, um, but it doesn't matter because before we even had probably the concept of last names down, you know, everyone was just traveling and living in different places for different reasons and dispersed and then relocating. And 
Um, it was really fascinating. So I would recommend it. Yeah, and one of the things, one of the things I highly recommend is Google Translator. It came in so handy. And the key thing here for anybody who's never traveled yet and is paying attention is keep your sentences short. Try not for complex, try not to go with complex sentences um, because Google Translator will mess it up. So ask for very simple things and you know let the people respond and they will. Uh, that's how we got along in our conversation with the uh, French people at uh, Grand Lac de la Frey is, you know, it was all Google Translator, but we had a great time. <laughs> See, that's amazing. Yeah, oh, and one other thing, uh, and this is specifically uh, for those who live on the East Coast, um, tone the volume down. Most East Coast people have a tendency to speak very loud, and we don't know why that is, but we really noticed it on our trip to New York City a couple of years ago where everybody we met from the East Coast was just very loud. And I don't think it's that they're loud because they're rude. It's just loud because it's their culture. And I think that's where most Americans get a bad rap uh, overseas is, well, they're very loud. Well, yeah, that's part of the culture. You know, so tone the volume down. <laughs> we, were actually, we were actually told numerous times, oh, we didn't know you were American. You don't sound American. It's like, well, um, yeah, we're American. We're just from the West Coast. <laughs> uh, what I've heard everywhere I go is the difference that you can tell between Americans and Canadians is Canadians are quieter. Um, in my and more polite and very polite. Yes, and my husband, he's from his he's from the New England area, and his family is very loud and direct. Um, like lovely, lovely people. But if you don't know them, you know they're just loud and direct. You know, um, and. <laughs> I remember his mom flew to the Midwest once and was sat behind some chatty Midwesterner and she got off the plane and she was like, I just want to tell her I don't care. And I was like, I was like, well, I think that's the cultural difference between people in the Midwest and people in the New England area and possibly from where you're from, you know, but uh, we were flying from Dublin to Edinburgh and it's like, it was so, I think we got there at five in the morning. It's such an early flight, you know, cool. everyone's just quiet and tired and from all, you can tell people are from everywhere. You know, a lot of people are obviously Irish. We're in Ireland. There's definitely, there was like this German uh, group of friends that were next to me and they were just so tired. And then there were these obvious Americans who had been there to golf and we're going to golf now in Scotland. And they, even though it was so early, they were just like shouting loud, you know, like laughing and like patting each other on the back. You could just see everyone else just be like, please be quiet. You know, <laughs> it's because it was so early. And I was like, oh, this is why we have a reputation, you know. But yep. that being said, please, I would rather you go and kind of, you know, make an ass of yourself and not go and never go. Just go and be nice as you can and try and be considerate of everyone else at 6 a.m. in the terminal, you know? <laughs> and if possible, learn, learn a few words of whatever language of the country you're going to. Mm -hmm. um, that always helps because you can always start off with uh, at least saying, s'il vous plaît, uh, merci. And, you know, that's about the extent of my French. I can't even pronounce wine. Uh, but I speak some Spanish, so it helps a bit in Spain, you know, and some German and some Thai and some Lao, a little bit of Arabic, uh, very little. So, you know, just try to learn a few phrases at least, especially thank you and please. 
I agree. Those will take you far. Even if you feel ridiculous saying them, just say it anyway, and they'll laugh at you, and you move on. You know, but you were polite. Exactly. <laughs> if you're if your mercy sounds like mercy, like they're still going to appreciate that you're trying. So. <laughs> yep. Well, I sometimes feel like Aldo uh, Reigns, I think it is, in the you know Quentin Tarantino's movie *Inglorious Bastards*, mm -hmm. where he's like, "A river Garchi. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> me sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> that's all of us. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, well, I've loved talking to you today. One question I did have, uh, kind of in the fun random question sections, um, and this is off base, but I'm extremely interested in the fact that you do PI work and have done PI work. Would you ever consider writing like a PI series? Um, not really. Uh, it's sort of like, I don't, I don't do law enforcement writing either. I mean, most of my writing for PI work is related to fraud and I write articles for, like fraud magazine and PI magazine and such um, that are all technical. You know, I, I do have one concept book in mind, um, but it's it's so far down the list. I mean, I, I've got the current series that I'm working on right now. I've got another series in mind where uh, a couple of gentlemen uh, wind up back in Montana in the 1770s and discover that, you know, the Revolutionary War is going and, you know, they come in with modern stuff. Sort of like, um, is it John Ringo who wrote the uh, 1632 series? I think so. Sort of like that, you know, people, you know, from our time wind up in the past and actually alter the past. Uh, so that's a series that's going to be a while. And then I've got another series planned uh, on a tank destroyer battalion in World War II. That's more of a historical fiction. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm a little busy. <laughs> so the concept of writing a forensic accounting novel is, you know, way down on the Right, not not maybe your number one thing. Although that movie, The Accountant with uh, Ben Affleck, was very good. Although that's probably very different still. But <laughs> oh no, that's, that's pretty much like me. He's uh, I'm not quite on the spectrum as far as he is, and I do get into long distance shooting. Uh, matter of fact, I have actually got a little certificate on my wall, on my I Love Me wall at home, showing that I've been able to actually accurately hit a target at 1,200 yards. So wow, that's very impressive. That's really impressive. Good job. I've, um, I, I can't do that. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I did it once. Uh, I'd like to do it more. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Let's make sure that we re like, how can your uh, fans reach out to you? Um, your, you said your website is www.jamespete.com. Correct. And I do have a Facebook page. It's, uh, James S. Pete. Uh, try not to go to my personal page. I won't friend anybody. I'm sorry. I'm very private in uh, many regards. And my own personal Facebook page is for me and my uh, far less than 100 Facebook friends. <laughs> but I do have uh, the author page up and running. So it's basically the one of the cover of the book surveyor is my author page. So please come in, check there, check out my website. Uh, I don't just write about uh, my writing on my uh, blog. I actually you know, write about movies that I've seen and other fun stuff. Um, well, that's for example, yeah, well, for example, I watched the, you know, I, we watch a lot of movies in our house because we don't have television, but we do have a television. Uh, mind you, I live on top of a small mountain outside of the little town of Enumclaw, Washington, and my driveway is basically a dirt road, three quarters of a mile long and up the mountain. So we don't get 
cable up there and I refuse to spend the money on satellite television. So we just go to the library and rent movie, check out movies. And so sometimes I'll watch a movie and I like it so much I'll actually write about it. Um, one of my favorites was one called East Side Sushi, you know, and then of course, Crazy Rich Asians, which is just phenomenal. And um, the book, the movie Alpha. Oh, I love that one. Highly recommend. I, okay, I have seen Crazy Rich Asians and I loved it so much. I need to read all the books because it's a whole series, but I, I've just seen the movie and I, I loved it. I love Constance Wu. I love the whole thing. Um, I've not he- read um, or heard of the, what was the sushi movie? Uh, East Side Sushi. I've not heard of that, but that sounds very interesting. Um, I love sushi at least, so <laughs> already on board. Um, and the Alpha movie, I want to rent because I will cry because I almost cried during the trailer. So <laughs> oh, it, it, it is a very good movie. That movie was worthy of an Oscar, in my opinion. It reminded me, granted, I've not seen it, uh, but I think it's The Land of Dolphins, uh, which is a book that I'm trying to find right now on my bookshelf as I'm just randomly mm-hmm. referencing it, uh, but that I read as a child. Um, it's a very good read. Or I think it's The Island of Dolphins, uh, but it's about a girl that's entire family gets killed and she lives on an island by herself, which is dolphins, and she tames like a wild wolf and, and mm. her companion, and she basically kind of domesticates it and... That's like, that's her only friend. Um, but that's kind of what that story, although very different, reminded me of relationship wise. And the book makes me cry. And so the trailer, you know, I was like, well, this is a rent from home movie so that I can just cry in my living room. So, well, you're, you're going to enjoy Alpha. It's got a couple of uh, twists to it that uh, took me by surprise. And I'm usually not taken by surprise by twists. That's great. We'll have to check that out. Well, and oh, also let's let's uh, plug your daughter's work as well. She just goes by her pen name Dragon Pyre P Y R E, I believe it is. Yeah. So uh, if you're into fanfic, you know you can go there and you know read it. I'm not into. Well, I say I'm not into fanfic. My daughter says that my books are nothing but Lewis and Clark fanfic. I, <laughs> I disagree, but and my my books are called Surveyor and Trekker, and the third one in the series is going to be called Explorer and the prequel is going to be called Openings and the first two are available on Amazon um, in both paperback and ebook format. They're also available at Barnes and Noble, uh, uh, Kobo. Um, Yeah, I think that's about it. So for those of you who live overseas in uh, Australia, you can get it. Well, Australians seem to enjoy my books on Amazon, but if you're in Canada and you've got your, um, not Nook, what is it called up there? E. I forget what the Kobo reader is called. But yeah, you can just get the uh, Kobo version. Well, there we go. I'll have to make sure. Is, do you know if Kindle is available in Canada? Oh, yes. Okay, good. Uh, uh, oh, in, in Canada? Yes, I believe. Yeah, it is. I'll have to make sure. <laughs> Most Canadians actually use Kobo, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, Amazon has it. You know, Kobo is actually a much broader distribution than Amazon is. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, of course, is the you know 800 pound gorilla in the United States, but Kobo is the 800 pound gorilla throughout the rest of the world. I'll have to check so, that out because I know that Amazon know, it, has that thing where you can, like their exclusive deal or something, where you can't basically put your book anywhere else. Right, Kindle Unlimited. Yes, and I I don't think I'm going to do that in that case. So well, it's yeah, there are pros and cons to it. I elected not to because I kind of like the idea of making mine available worldwide to everybody. Um, 
you know, but part of the problem is you also have to watch out for people trying to rip it off and, you know, sell it for free or, you mm. know, which annoys the living daylights out of me because as an author, you spend so much time and energy writing it to have somebody steal it and not pay you for it. Um, my kids have, were taught from an early age, you do not pirate movies or books. <laughs> so Right. Yeah. Not at all. It's someone else's work and livelihood, you know? <laughs> Yep. Please don't I'll have somebody uh, basically rip off my patented invention. And it's like, okay, so Amazon, get this off of here. You know, wow. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I've really appreciated it. And then if you want to come back at any point and chat some more, I am absolutely into that idea uh, when you're releasing new work or anything like that to promote it. Well, thanks, Ashley. I will uh, definitely shoot you an email at the very minimum saying it's out. Um and who knows, maybe we can get into actually plot discussions one of these days. But for now, I'd rather people actually just read the books and just say, wow, this is good. Uh, for those of your fans who are into sci-fi, just to give you an idea, my work is being compared to uh, Robert Heinlein, um, John Scalzi, and Marion, was it Marion Zimmer Bradley? No, no, no. Uh, Roger Delaney. No, De Lester Del Rey. That's it. I had to think about it for a minute, so uh, which I thought was amazing that people are actually saying that. And with any luck at all, I'll be nominated for the uh, Prometheus Award offered by the Libertarian Futurist Society, and that would be really cool. We'll see. <laughs> that would be really great, and good luck with that. That would be amazing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much today for speaking to me, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thanks, everyone.